Good morning again, church. It is a joy to be with you this morning. If you have a Bible, please open it to John chapter 13. At the Hill, we, our normal rhythm here is we, we begin every, every year by really slowing down and focusing our attention on what we call the basics of our ministry or our, we refer to it as our, our DNA. In obedience to Lord, our, our Lord's command to make disciples, we, we, we attempt to align all that we do to do just that, to making disciples. And if we're going to make disciples, it's essential we share a common understanding of how we're defining a disciple. And we frame our definition of a disciple within three essential relationships. Three essential relationships that we're all called as Christians to be faithful within. We're, we're called to be faithful in a relationship to God. We're called to be faithful in a relationship to one another, other believers. And we're called to be faithful in our relationship to a lost and dying world around us. So last week from John chapter 4, we discussed our relationship to God as devoted worshipers. We said a devoted worshiper is a life lived in response to the gospel. Who God is and what He has done for us. A devoted worshiper is, a, is spirit-filled, is word-centered. And a devoted worshiper understands that all of life is lived under the banner of the Lordship of Christ. There's no area of our life that should not be submitted to King Jesus. At the foundational level, discipleship is a worship issue. It's about valuing and desiring Jesus over everything else. This morning, from John chapter 13, we're going to address our second mark of a disciple, what we call a loving servant, which informs our relationship to one another as believers. Now, before we dive into our text, I want you to consider how you would define, or how our world defines, greatness and success. What comes to mind when you hear greatness in our culture, success in our culture. And we live in a world where greatness is defined with, by how grand, how glamorous, how broad an impact an individual can have in their life, in their career, in their platform, in their profession, in their mark of life. This is greatness in our world. But the Christian faith the gospel of Jesus Christ blows all of those categories. It reorients our thinking. Because in the cross of Christ, true greatness, true success is found in humble, quiet, self-sacrificial service to others. So as disciples, we are called to be a community of sacrificial love displaying the gospel which has saved us. That's what I want us to see from John chapter 13. As disciples, we're called to be a community of sacrificial love displaying the gospel which has saved us. John chapter 13, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, I want you to have a Bible. So look in front of you in the seat back in front of you and grab one. If there's not one right in front of you, that means you've got to talk to the neighbor next to you and say, hey, hand me that Bible on the other side of you. But I want you to have a Bible. It's important you follow along in the text. Make sure I'm not just up here talking. Make sure that I'm showing you what I'm saying from the Word of God. John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read down through verse 17. 
This is the word of the Lord. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to be uh, this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, You have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is no greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. John chapters 13 through 17 contain Jesus' intimate teaching with his disciples known as the Upper Room Discourse. Very importantly, it begins with a dramatic call for the disciples to follow him through self-sacrificial service. What's really important here, before Jesus speaks a single word of instruction, He does something. He does the unthinkable, forever searing an image into the minds of the disciples. Jesus models and then calls them, and you and I, to be people of the towel. The importance of this portion of Scripture I don't think, it cannot be overstated. For it really does define what the life of a disciple should look like in the manner in which Christ's kingdom operates. The economy of Christ's kingdom is put on full display here. If you're not a believer this morning, I especially want you to pay close attention And try and answer the question, what type of Christ is this? Because if you're anything like I was before I was a Christian, you have all kinds of preconceived ideas of who Jesus is. So did I. I knew who Jesus was, I thought. But it wasn't until God opened my eyes to the beauty of His Son modeled through passages like this one that I was able to see my true need, and then the glory and the beauty and the majesty of who Jesus is 
and what he has come to do. For us as the church, as the Hill Church, our text this morning defines our second mark as a disciple, as I said. We are called, Jesus calls us as disciples to be people of the towel, to be loving servants as we define it. And I want to give you three aspects of what exactly that entails from the rest of, for the rest of our time. The first one is this, that a loving servant embraces the heart of Jesus in the gospel. A loving servant embraces the heart of Jesus in the gospel. There are two important markers that frame our text and really set the scene here. If you look back at verse 1, at verse one you'll see these. First, we're told this story takes place in the context of the Passover meal instituted to remember God as both Savior and Redeemer of His people. We're also told in verse 1, this Passover happens during the arrival of the long-expected hour. Jesus knew His hour had come, the text says. It's Thursday evening. The night before Jesus will be suspended on a cross, publicly executed for the sins of mankind. The sun will not set again before Jesus dies as the true Passover lamb and the sin bearer of His people. So, the shadow of the cross looms large across this text. This is not a text just about foot washing. It's about the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a text concerning the saving, cleansing power of Jesus through His humble, sacrificial service meant to mark our lives as disciples. And this all begins with the heart of Jesus as we see in verse 1. I'm going to read it again. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. On the first 12 chapters of John's Gospel, this word love appears 12 times. In the last eight chapters, it shows up no less than 44 times, making clear that it was the love of God in Christ which motivated Him to go to the cross. And this love being addressed here concerns Jesus' particular love for His people, as the end of verse 1 says. His own who were in the world, as it defines Him. This includes, of course... First his disciples here, but then also all who would believe after them, directly applying to us this morning if we know Christ. This is Jesus' particular love for his newly forming people, the church. It's a love we know if we know Christ. And it's a love we are called to embody as disciples of Christ. And the end of verse 1 further explains this love when it states, He loved them to the end, or maybe your translation says, unto the end. Jesus' life was a life of love. His coming into the world was the manifestation of the Father's love. Every action Jesus committed, every word Jesus spoke, was motivated by love. And it was a love of divine commitment and, in, and of in, enduring nature. And it's radically expressed here through this self-abasing act of foot washing which anticipates Jesus' cleansing death upon the cross. Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that He lay down His life for His friends. John chapter 15, verse 3. In the Gospel, Jesus loved us, His people, those who know Him, to the end. 
A loving servant embraces the loving heart of Jesus. That's where it begins. Jesus' love was one of full investment and commitment. Jesus' love was void of pride and selfish ambition. He knew very well what He came to earth to do. The cross was not a surprise to Jesus. And the text says, He knew His hour had come. Jesus embraced the cross. He committed His life to one of self-sacrifice and service. And why would He do such a thing? Because He loved His own to the end. That's why. 1 John 3.16 tells us, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The Apostle John defines what love is. He says, We know love that He laid down His life for us. We get used to a lot of statements in the Christian faith. We hear things and we're used to and we memorize verses and we just move on. But we should pause. If you are a believer this morning, Jesus laid down His life for you. He set aside His divine right. He laid down His life for you. With all of your wickedness, jealousy, envy, pride, arrogance, rebellion, self-centeredness, Jesus laid His life down for you. You didn't deserve it. He did it. A complete act of humble self-sacrifice for an unworthy candidate of you and me. That is love. And in light of this love, the Apostle John says, we ought, moral imperative, we ought to love one another. How? We're to lay our lives down for one another's. The crucifixion of ourselves the dying of ourselves, is the only way we can experience the love of God in Christ and the only way we can express the love of God in Christ. We must die to self. We must embrace the heart of Jesus, which means we must embrace this life of self-sacrificial love towards one another. But there's a second point here. A loving servant is also motivated by the humility of Jesus in the Gospel. Whenever you hear someone say, I hear it often, I'm sure you do. Christianity is just like all other religions. You hear that often? You you, you know right away, you might not want to say this, but hold it back. You know they have no idea what Christianity is all about. No clue. They're clueless concerning the truth of the gospel. There's nothing like the gospel. There's no one like Jesus. And these next nine verses are going to make that point to us. Jesus' special knowledge of His Father's will for Him Articulated in verse 1 is now repeated, but it's given much more significant emphasis here in addition in verses 2 to 3. Let me read it. Turn your eyes to verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Judas lured away by darkness. He's he's cooperated with Satan and and become one of his ploys. Verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Jesus is no ordinary man. That's what these verses are telling us. He's the divine Son come to earth from heaven. Jesus is the one invested with all authority and power. It says the Father had put all things into His hands. Meaning, He's the Lord of heaven and earth. That's who Jesus is. And He is the one who, the text says, rose from supper. Now, with such power and status at His disposal, 
We could never expect what we read next. Verse 4. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Having come from heaven, having all authority in his hands, Jesus assumes the posture of the lowliest of servants and washes the disciples' feet, including Judas, the betrayer. The Creator washes the creation's feet. The One with all power and authority, He he kneels as a servant. The Lord of glory takes up the towel. Disciples would have never conceived of washing each other's feet. Jews did not wash feet. They had people to do that. And a Jewish rabbi especially did not wash feet. So what Jesus does here is outright scandalous and culturally unbelievable. Feet are bad in any culture. Just imagine what feet look like with open-toed sandals on dusty streets shared by animals. If you want me to keep going, I will. This scene is meant to teach us just how much Teach us what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. It tells us both how we are to view ourselves and one another's. A probing question I always ask myself first, I'll ask it to you. Does your Christian life, does the way you think of yourself, the way you interact with other believers, make any sense of this scene? Church, this is our Savior. This is our King. This is the founder and perfecter of our faith here on His knees, washing feet. And as would be expected, silence breaks out among the disciples, except for our boy Peter. Don't laugh at Peter, because we're all Peter. He objects in verse 6. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? To which Jesus replied, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. In other words, something is going to happen which will help you process this, Peter. Then Peter emphatically says, You shall never wash my feet. Peter is still operating on a purely physical, cultural level here. This is outrageous to Peter, and he won't stand for it. But then Jesus makes clear there's something going on here more than simply washing feet when he replies in verse 8. Look at it. If I do not wash you, you have no share or part with me. Peter doesn't quite get this. We know this because of what he says next. Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Peter's a man of extremes. He goes from one to the other. You can't wash me to give me a whole bath. Wash everything. And Jesus replies in verse 10. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. 
For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. What's Jesus saying here? Remember, this text is under the shadow of the cross. Jesus knows his hour has come. Jesus is not simply teaching a a hygiene course here. Jesus is pointing forward to the cleansing work which only he provides with somewhat of a dual application here. In verses 6 through 8, the foot washing symbolizes the cleansing that is the result of Christ's impending death and resurrection. Jesus is speaking about what is going to happen tomorrow on the cross. Jesus is telling Peter that spiritual cleansing, the spiritual cleansing that you need to remove your guilt, the guilt of your sin, I will take care of for you, Peter, on the cross tomorrow. For you to participate in my kingdom, for you to have a share apart with me, your sins must be washed away, Peter. The death of Jesus on the cross is not just a sacrifice. It is an atoning, cleansing sacrifice. In other words, it cleanses us and removes our guilt, bringing us back into right relationship with God. Without the cross, there is no salvation. Because without the cross, there is no cleansing. Unless the Lamb of God takes away a person's sin, washes that person, he or she has no part with Christ. No one can enter the kingdom of God. You cannot have a share with Jesus unless you've been washed by the blood of Christ. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Have you been washed by the blood of Christ? And here's where the preconceived thoughts of Jesus and Christianity often lead us astray. Because you talk to a lot of people and you ask them, are you a Christian you go to church. Yes, I do. You get that a lot. Why? Or you start to dig and I am a Christian because I. We're all going wrong now. I am a Christian because I attend here. I am a Christian because I try hard. I am a Christian because I pray often. I am a Christian because I was baptized. We're going all wrong. The truth of the gospel, the heart of the gospel, if you're not a Christian this morning, you can only answer, I am a Christian because Christ has cleansed me by His blood. That's it. The reality of this text is what Jesus is doing with Peter here. There's two dimensions. There's a layer here we have to see. You can see Jesus through your preconceived ideas, through your physical or cultural or social lens all you want. You can deal with Jesus in terms of foot washing and hygiene if you want, but you'll miss the Jesus. To know Jesus, to come to know the power of the gospel, you have to see Jesus rightly. But you cannot do that until you see yourself accurately exactly what Jesus is saying to Peter here. He's saying, Peter, don't allow the physical or cultural realities to blind you of the truth of what's, be, what's happening here, what I'm saying. You need cleansing on a much deeper level. The assumption behind this text is this. You, I, were dirty. 
Our problem is not that we aren't good enough, though we're not good enough. Our problem is that we don't pray enough. It's not that we don't try hard, try hard enough. Our problem is that we are dirty spiritually. Due to our sin, we are morally unclean before a holy and righteous God. We need spiritual cleansing, which comes solely through faith and the work of Christ on Calvary. We need to repent and trust in Christ's atoning, cleansing work on the cross for salvation. Have you done that? Is your Christianity more about what you do than about what Christ has done for you? But Peter's excited response regarding taking a full bath, it opens up the door for Jesus to turn the foot washing on another point. And it's that this initial and fundamental cleansing that Jesus provides on the cross is a once-for-all act. It's not something to be repeated. Jesus says, Peter, once you have taken a bath, you're clean. You don't need to rebathe your whole body. He's saying, Peter, you belong to me. Your faith makes you mine, unlike Judas and his unbelief. He is not clean. You're mine, Peter. And my death on the cross will justify you and make you right. You are clean by my death. You don't need a whole bath again, Peter. But what you will need is daily cleansing from the contaminating effects of sin. Daily humility expressed in ongoing, continual repentance through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit is the Christian life. It's the pathway of discipleship. John would later say in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. John's writing to Christians. But if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Humility, repentance, and sacrifice is the heart of the Christian faith. That is the gospel. God's sinless, divine Son dying a cleansing death in our place for sinners like you and me is the Christian center. So without radical humility, there's no cross. Without a cross, there's no Christianity. Without repentance, there's no salvation. Evidence for us as believers, evidence that we are believers in Christ right now, present tense, no matter if you've been walking with the Lord for a week or 40 years, evidence that you are a believer in Christ is not that we've merely confessed our sin. It's that we are confessing our sin. And this is the importance of the Lord's Supper. This is why the table is at the center of our fellowship. We are people that proclaim that we are a Christian not just one time, but daily, often, all the time, by confessing we need Jesus. Because we're sinners. We need His cleansing blood as much as we did when we accepted Him initially every day of our lives. Humility is the Christian life because servanthood is the mark of our King. The kingdom of God is never advanced on the back of prideful men and women. Prideful men and women can grow a group of people. A prideful man can preach very eloquent sermons. 
A prideful man can organize a church really well. But no true gospel fruit is bore except by humble, sacrificial service. If the sovereign Lord was willing to humble himself in this way, will we allow our pride, our humility to keep us from doing the same? To be a loving servant is to live a life of humility because of the humility of our Savior upon the cross. So as a loving servant, we are secondly motivated by the humility of Jesus in the gospel. But thirdly, a loving servant accepts the call of Jesus in light of the gospel. We accept a call of Jesus in light of the gospel. Jesus asked the question in verse 12, Do you understand what I have done to you? Rather interesting, in Luke's account of this Passover meal, we read in chapter 22 of verse 24 that a dispute had broken out amongst the disciples as to who was the greatest. When the cross was just a few hours away, the disciples were so blinded by their pride and couldn't understand what was happening. They're arguing over who's the greatest when the great one is on his knees washing the disciples' feet. How amazing Jesus is. How unlike, Je- how unlike us Jesus is. And how this moment, you can just imagine, must have been seared in the disciples' minds later. But following the foot washing, Jesus issues a call in verses 12 to 17. I'm going to read it again. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is no greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus issues a call here to to a life of servanthood. He issues a call to embody the very message of the gospel which has saved us. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark chapter 10, 45. How much more should we serve one another? Jesus implores great logic here, right? If it's true for the greater one, me, how much more for the lesser one, you? Do you understand what I have done for you, Jesus asked. And it's a question for each of us. Do you understand what Jesus has done for us in the gospel? The answer to that is, how do we serve? Our service testifies to our understanding of what He's done. The way we serve one another says something about our knowledge and acceptance of the, what God has done for us, how Jesus has served us in the gospel. Again, the, disciples, the discipleship question always goes back to obedience and transformation. It's not so much, do you know me in terms of intellectually it's how has what you know about me transformed your life he says there at the end blessed are you if you do them this is a question of the utmost importance for us as a church because our obedience in embodying jesus's life of servanthood is a stewardship question and it's a question that gets at the very heart of our existence as a church. Look down at the conclusion of this story in verses 34 and 35 of this chapter. This is Jesus' point. He's building to this section. 
this foot washing, and everything he has said in this chapter builds towards this concluding statement. Verse 34. Everybody there? A new command I have given you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, we have to remember, Jesus is leaving. He's preparing His disciples for His departure on how they are to carry on His mission of making disciples once He leaves. And to do this, He gives them what He calls here a new command of love, following this foot washing. But this is kind of odd. Because this really isn't new, right? It's a repeated refrain in the Old Testament. And this forces us really to ask the question, so what exactly is new about this? We're told to love one another, told to love our neighbors in the Old Testament. So what's, what's new here? Well, I think two things. There's a new standard and there's a new order of love, I think. So a new standard of love. Jesus says, a new command I have given you that you ought to love one another just as I have loved you. The new standard is just as I have loved you. How did he love us? He died. The new standard is Jesus. His love. Of course, yes, in this foot washing. But the foot washing is ultimately to point to his death upon the cross. It is his sacrificial and self-denying death for our sins which provides us with our new standard of love. We love by serving one another. Modeled after this posture of foot washing. What does that look like? Well, we could spend hours there. Maybe it's a question we should ask more on our own with our Bible open. But at least looks like putting the interests of others first. Philippians 2, speaking of having this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus, Paul says, do nothing from rivalry, selfish ambition, or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So a church operating by this new standard of love is a body of believers who have each put their preferences and self-interest on the shelf for the sake of each other, for the sake of the body at large. Competition, comparison, self-promotion is gone when we embrace this new standard of love. To do that, we must see Jesus in the midst of His disciples who will reject Him the next day. But Jesus, down on His knees, washing their feet. Why do we count others more significant than ourselves? Why do we put the interest of others over ourselves? See Jesus hanging on the cross. See the Lord of glory suspended in the air, being publicly executed in the most shameful way for us as people. That's why. We must love that way, church. The cross of Christ is our new standard of love. But secondly, there's a new order of love. Instead of love of neighbor, we have a a new command to love one another. Now, we know this doesn't erase or contradict love of neighbor. It's just a new focus, I think. A new order, we might say. We are to love one another. We are to be people of the towel, foot washers and servants. We are to love one another in this way. That's not all he he says here, right? 
Jesus doesn't throw out love of neighbor. Our love for one another is not an end in itself. He says that by our love for one another, by us serving one another, our neighbors, all people, will come to know that we are His disciples. So as the church of Jesus Christ, we are to be a community marked by love. By Christian love expressed through sacrificial service. Our love is rooted in the Gospel. The sacrificial death of the Son of God for our sins. We must be people of humility. A people of quiet submission to one another in Christ. And when we do this, the world will see and know that we belong to Him. The cross makes sense of those people. This is our call as the church, as disciples of Christ. Now, I want to be clear here. We... We can't be confused here. The, the Christian life is a call for us to share our faith. It's a call for us to evangelize the lost. It's a call for us to move forward as the church. To assault the kingdom of darkness. To proclaim the victory of Christ. There is activity in terms of our, pro, our, pro, our proclamation we must take part in. We'll deal with that sermon next week. But I think we must be careful that we don't overlook something very important regarding our witness in terms of evangelism. Evangelism involves as much identity as it does activity. The two are intertwined in the Scriptures. Our identity is in fact what grounds and informs our activity, our proclamation of the Gospel. We are to be a community of love if we are to share the love of God in the Gospel. Would it both be an audible but a visible manifestation of the gospel? I'm going to read a quote. If you've been around here for a while, you've heard it many times. But it's good enough, you should hear it many more times. Francis Schaeffer famously said, quoting on John 13. And John 13, I think it will be up here. It is. John 13 was that. The point of it was that. If an individual Christian does not show love towards other true Christians, the world has, has a right to judge that he is not a Christian. Here Jesus is stating something else which is much more cutting, much more profound. We cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true and that Christianity is true, unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. Let us be careful, indeed, to spend a lifetime studying to give honest answers, but after we have done our best to communicate to a lost world, still we never for, we must never forget that the final apologetic which Jesus gave us is the observable love of true Christians for true Christians. This is the whole point. The world is going to judge whether Jesus has been sent by the Father on the basis of something that is open to observation. The observation is the love of God that we express towards one another. The, the observation is the church of Jesus Christ. Our calling is to embody the gospel message which we are commanded to proclaim. Discipleship is about becoming what we are in Christ. Individually, yes, but more importantly, corporately as His people. Our calling is to embody the gospel we proclaim by loving one another as Jesus loved us. The gospel we proclaim in our midst must be as visible as it is audible. If there was ever a text that the church of Jesus Christ needs to hear today, it's this one. In our cultural moment, we need to hear this. 
We live in a world where, let's just be honest, tribalism is the game. Define someone, label someone, make enemies against them, and then you can dismiss them and fight against them. That's the easy thing to do. And sadly, what's in our culture today is not, the church is not immune from it. It's very profitable for people in our culture, leaders, to divide us and conquer us. So I hope you're wiser than that and pay attention. The media outlets that come at you from both sides want to divide you and conquer you because they can manipulate you by that. And these last several years have really tested, I think, what is really at the center of the church. But as the culture around us becomes more divided and lines of tribalism are forged more deep, it presents us as the church of Jesus Christ a great gospel opportunity. Because in the church we operate on an entirely different economy than the world. We should be confusing in the best way to the world around us. When someone comes among us and they hear us singing all hail the power of Jesus, differing ages, ethnicities, socioeconomic classes, cultures, and differing, differing political opinions. Believe that or not. Altogether, not fighting. Loving one another, caring for one another, praying for one another, putting the interests of everyone else above yourself. In confusion, they will ask, what is at work amongst those people? And we will say, Christ and Him crucified. But that demands we keep the gospel at the center of our church. And that requires every single one of us. We love one another just as Christ loved us. A loving servant must first embrace the heart of Jesus, which is love. We know love. Jesus laid down his life for us. So we lay down our lives for one another. A loving servant is motivated by the humility of Jesus. There's an image that should guard us and keep us as a church, and it's our Savior on His knees with a towel washing feet. We must humbly serve one another as Jesus served us. And then we must answer the call to love. We must love one another, church, just as Jesus did. And by so doing, the world will know that the power of the gospel is real. That they have real transforming power in their midst. And we can proclaim with clarity and with authenticity. It's Jesus. Him crucified. He saved us. He's changed us. Come be a part of what we're doing. As disciples, we're called to be a community of sacrificial love displaying the gospel. Which has in fact saved us. question we begin is what type of Jesus is this if you don't know him if there was any preconceived ideas I hope that they were smashed today by this text Jesus is one the divine one who came to suffer and to die to offer you cleansing washing 
for your sins. You're dirty. You need Christ to cleanse you. Come to Him today. He is the fountain of cleansing blood. He and He alone. Church, let's see Jesus. Keep Him at the center of what we do. Let's love one another well. You know, one thing I'll say as I close, some of you don't know this, we were a, this was an established existing church since 1957 when we came here in 2018 to start the Hill Church. And there's a lot of things we can take from Windsor Hills Community Church that blessed us, but this one is one for sure. We found loving, humble servants who set their interests aside and said, that, there's a young preacher. He, I don't think he's ever preached in his life hardly. Those young people don't very know what they're doing. They do have a passion for Jesus. We're going to set our interests aside and we're going to pray and ask God to use us. And I'm grateful for it. It's a model. We to love Jesus. Keep Him at the center. Father in heaven, I thank you that you always, the Word of God always reorients our thinking, blows our categories. God, might, might it do that again today? We serve a King, a Lord, who picked up a towel. God, might we be the same. Might we be a humble, quiet, self-sacrificial people because we trust that by your means of grace, prayer, gathering to sing, taking the Lord's Supper, baptizing, preaching of the Word, simple, quiet things you give us to do. Your very name is being advanced to the nations and we get to take part in it. God, give us faith to trust you and to love well. God, help us by the power of the gospel to set ourselves aside, to not approach conversations and decisions and people thinking about us first, but thinking about you and thinking about the interests of our brothers and sisters. God, thank you for what you're doing in our church. Thank you for the supernatural love that is implanted in this church through so many wonderful sacrificial people. God, I pray we would be faithful as a good stewards to fan it into flame and continue to blow on it. It will increase. But God, not so we'll just love each other so that other people in our neighborhood who don't know you would come to know Christ. Any who's here today who doesn't know you, God, call them to yourself. Help them to see themselves accurately this morning. Sinners in need of grace, open their eyes to see Christ rightly, the Savior. God, we love you. And as we sing now, we want to make a confession that we will build our lives on something. Might we reflect and make sure that we're, we're all clear. We need to build our, our, our lives on the right thing. Let it be on Jesus and Him alone. In your name we pray. Amen.